Julie, that was beautiful. Really ministered to us. Well, as you can tell, we've got new seating for you this morning. So the pews are all back in the sanctuary and screwed down and even give you some more leg room when we move back there. So thanks to the men who worked so hard on that uh, this week. We're going to be in here for a few more weeks, though. I think our, first, our projected date is to shift over on September 12th. So if you need extra padding, you, know, you have to bring your own pillows and stuff. So. But, uh, but yes, so we will get there. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And you can turn there, it's also provided for you in your bulletin. But this is a very popular passage of scripture for Christians. We, we really enjoy this story about our Lord Jesus and how he was um, undergoing a great trial and temptation in his human nature, and yet he persevered uh, triumphantly in his temptations. It has a long history of course, in the church with a great variety of applications uh, for our lives and seeing the glory of our Lord Jesus and how he succeeded in triumphing over these temptations. However, there is an aberrant application that would probably do well to just get rid of at the very beginning, I think, and correct it if necessary for you because sometimes this story in Luke chapter 4 is used as as, uh, to suggest that really the Bible is like a strategic playbook, or that we can somehow use it to outsmart the devil, or that it's, uh, it's filled with an arsenal of Bible verses uh, that we are to wield as weapons against the evil one, and that Satan has his schemes, but that somehow Jesus tells us and teaches us how to thwart him by wielding Scripture. If we just know it, we can use it, and those temptations will just evaporate. The idea is to know Scripture so well that when any temptation comes across your path, you're going to be able to bring to mind that particular Bible verse and quote it, and almost magically the temptation is going to disappear from your life. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, of course, Scripture memorization is expected of us as believers, and it is a necessary means to triumph over temptation, and this episode that we're going to look at with Jesus' life has a lot of lessons in it from us to learn about how to know Scripture. But more of what Jesus teaches us is a resolution to obey Scripture, to obey the Father, not just simply using the Word of God. And while the Word is a very powerful weapon against the devil, devil, we're not supposed to use the Bible or look at Scripture as though it's just a, a cache of silver bullets that you go through. And you try to find the ones that are going to match a temptation. And I suppose then you carry those you know, on your belt and you have your scripture gun ready. And then as soon as that temptation comes away from the devil, bang, you just shoot it and it's gone. And you're left holding the smoking scripture gun. I don't know if you ever saw that Christian cartoon. But, uh, but yeah, there is one. So, but that's just not how life works. We all know it doesn't work that way. That's not how temptation works, and that's not how triumph works. And so we defeat the devil by obeying the Scripture, not just simply by quoting it. And we're going to see that Jesus is doing way more than just simply quoting the Scriptures, but he's showing his resolve and asserting his resolve that he is going to obey it, and he's going to trust God his Father. So let me pray for us, and we'll begin looking at Luke chapter 4 together this morning. Oh Lord Jesus, we do praise you for being our strong Savior. We praise you for what we read in the Scriptures this morning 
and how we understand your perseverance and how it relates to our perseverance, how you attained a righteousness that we could never attain, and yet you give it to us by our faith in you for your work for us on the cross and in your resurrection. And we pray this morning that you would guide us as we study your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would drive your word deep into our hearts and protect it from being stolen from the evil one this morning. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. So as we're going through Luke, we're building upon from last week the Father's approval and the Holy Spirit's empowering of Jesus at his baptism. You remember the story ends with the Father speaking from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And then there's our favorite passage we've come to so far in the Gospel of Luke, the genealogy, which I hope you're all still really excited about genealogies, because at the end we see that Jesus was the son of Adam and the son of God. And so we're going to observe this morning that Jesus, you see, is obedient in all the ways that Adam wasn't, or any of his descendants, not even the people of Israel. And the temptation and failure of the first Adam is now repeated with victory with the last Adam. The testing and failure of Israel as God's son is now repeated with success by the truly obedient son who would earn a righteousness for us. What a great salvation we have that's then been accomplished and what great hope and courage this gives us. Jesus likely reported this story to his disciples and then later on they would write it down and it would become for us part of Holy Scripture. And what we learn in this passage is that our Lord Jesus proves that he is and will remain the loyal and beloved son of the Father. You see this passage, the story, this episode, everything that goes on, it's about Jesus, really. It's not really about you and me and our struggles with sin, as much as it is about how great and wonderful a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. So what's going on in the storyline? Well, Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, and he prepares himself for that ministry by spending an extended time, 40 days, out in the desert fasting and praying to gain the necessary strength he's going to need when he starts his public ministry. In fact, that might be the best application for us this morning, is what's necessary to be prepared and to gain strength to do the ministry that God has before us. And so we're going to see in our passage in verses 1 and 2 that it's the Spirit who guides Jesus through his preparations. And then in verses 3 to 12, that the devil at the same time is tempting Jesus throughout these preparations. And then finally in verse 13, that Jesus conquered the devil in each and every temptation. Now this temptation narrative is covered in detail in Matthew's gospel as well. And it's briefly mentioned in Mark's gospel, and John's gospel doesn't record it. But it's important, I think, to see a little bit of a difference here between Matthew and Luke to help you appreciate what they're doing with the stories. Matthew uh, draws out a certain emphasis for his purposes in writing his gospel account, and he uses the story to show that Jesus is the Messiah on a mission, and he's about to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And so the temptation is really seen as a, an attempt by the evil one to derail this mission and the resolve of this Messiah to set up his kingdom. And that fits very clearly in Matthew's purposes as he writes his gospel. In Luke, Luke is likewise drawing out emphases for, for his purposes in writing his gospel account. And he stresses, as we've already seen, 
the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and how important that relationship is. And Luke emphasizes Jesus' manhood and the redemption of mankind that Jesus is going to accomplish. And so the temptation, you see, is really an attempt by the devil to break that relationship between God the Father and God the Son and to spoil the plans of redemption that he has for humanity. But our Lord Jesus will prove that he is the beloved and loyal Son, and he will remain that way. So first we see that the Spirit guides Jesus through his preparations, and we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, after his baptism, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So right away we see Luke's emphasis on the Holy Spirit mentioned twice right here. The Holy Spirit is a major theme in Luke's gospel, and Jesus is filled with all the fullness of the Spirit. The Gospel of John talks about how the Spirit is given to Jesus without measure. And the Holy Spirit guided him during his fastings and his prayers and his wanderings and testing in the wilderness. And Jesus was strengthened by the Holy Spirit during these 40 days, preparing himself and being tempted. You know, the desert was known as a place for demons, but it was also known as a place where Jesus would go to pray a lot and commune with his Father. And the 40 days are an obvious parallel to Moses being on Mount Sinai, to Elijah and his fast at Horeb, but perhaps we should associate them in this story more so with the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings of the people of God, of Israel, because it's with this comparison that Jesus quotes from throughout as he battles with the devil. Now, Israel is also known as God's son and is described that way in the Old Testament, chosen and loved by him. In Exodus 4.22, it simply says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And in the prophet Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. But they largely failed the test of the exodus and the wanderings. And it all began with the episode of the manna. In Exodus 16.4 we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Well, Jesus is God's Son, of course, the eternal Son of the Father, and he would succeed in his testing. In fact, to raise the stakes and to raise the glory that can be obtained, he goes into direct face-to-face, hand-to-hat combat with the devil. And Jesus is the only one who's done this. Not even Job directly was confronted by the devil. So this should be a really good fight to watch as we go along. God led Israel into the desert to test them. The Spirit leads Jesus into the desert to test him. God tested Israel to reveal what was in their heart. God tests his son to reveal Verse 3.22, this is my beloved son in whom I was well pleased. And to show that, and he'll use the devil to accomplish it. Now the setting should be noted here, and some of the English translations get it really clear and some do not, that the temptations of the devil lasted all 40 days. 
The Greek syntax makes that very clear. It's not just that there were three temptations at the end of 40 days. Those are the ones that are highlighted. He's being tested for 40 days. And the three that we have recorded here are the last three, presumably when Jesus is at his weakest point, showing the devil's best attempts. And so we really sort of cut to the heart of the drama or to the important part in the fight. And of course, noting that Jesus is hungry emphasizes the severity, especially of the very first temptation that comes his way. And when you think about the storyline of the Bible, at least Adam had food to eat, right? He could eat of all the other trees, just not the one God said no to. But in contrast, Jesus, we see, Luke tells us, is full of the Spirit of God, though he's empty of food. And he's going to come off victorious. And this is how we succeed in battling against sin and temptation. It's by being filled with the Holy Spirit as we're taught in Scripture. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of the temptations that Jesus went through because we must not lose sight of the fact that this is all under divine direction. The whole experience. I mean, the devil is just simply being used by God. The devil, according to his own nature and his own purposes, Of course, he desires to tempt the Son of God who's made vulnerable now because he is in his humanity. The incarnation afforded a key opportunity for the devil to ruin the salvation attempt of humanity, a humanity that he, in a sense, stole by bringing sin into the world through Adam and Eve, and we have the fallen condition that we all live in. So in taking on a full human nature, Jesus appears weak. I mean, as an infant, the devil tried to kill him off through Herod. Well, now Jesus is in preparation mode for his ministry, and he again appears appears very weak, and so Satan shows up on the scene again. Now, we don't know what form that Satan appeared in, whether visually or through simply a voice. But you know, the Lord God controls all things, including the workings of the evil one. God has his own purpose and his own purposes, and he fulfills them in all things, and he doesn't usually tell us very much at all. What we have is what is written, and that's all we have. At the same time, the devil is working against God and his own thinking and his own thwarting, but in reality, he's he's actually assisting God and further damning himself. And it's because of this truth of the sovereignty of God that the devil and all those who work against God's purposes As Jonathan Edwards, one of the great pastors and theologians and preachers of the northeastern part of the United States many years ago, said that the devil and people who work with him are the greatest and most damned fools of all history. Because all they do in in being angry and working against God's purposes is actually further his purposes. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. And it's in his human nature that he is tempted because the divine nature cannot be tempted. And Jesus also has no sin in his human nature. And yet he entered into our fallen, weakened condition as a man. And Jesus was tempted outwardly only, whereas we are tempted inwardly as well because of our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. This actually means that Jesus was tormented more not less in his temptation. Because he would know the extent of evil, 
And most of the time, our ideas are evil, of evil are only really just half blind to the truth of how wicked they really are. And he endured much farther than, than we do because he would always fight and persevere to the very end of the battle. We give up before the battle's over. So in a sense, we give up when it's not as hard as it really could be. But he persevered all the way through to the end. And it's important to understand that Jesus persevered as a man, as one who perfectly relied on the Holy Spirit. It's not a valid excuse to talk about the union with the divine nature as somehow, oh, it must have been easy for him because he could just rely on his divinity. It's clear that the temptations that follow as we read them, he didn't rely upon his divine nature as a way of a quick escape. And as a result, he's a strong savior who perfectly understands our situations. And he's able to come to our aid and provide help to us exactly what we need in our trials and temptations because he understands them even more thoroughly than we understand them ourselves. These verses in the book of Hebrews point to this truth. Hebrews 5.8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Hebrews 2.18 For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know, those passages in Hebrews are worth meditating on and the theology behind them, and someday we'll go through Hebrews together. But you see, God tests us to produce holiness in our lives. To really just form the character of Christ. That's why they're in our life. And sometimes, you know, that's going to involve the devil's temptations at the same time alongside what God is doing in designing our life and training us. But God can take advantage and will take advantage of those things to even do more work in our lives. And when our temptations come even when they might sometimes come more directly from the devil. We don't always know all the sources, but still there is within us a sinfulness from which these things arise. The Apostle James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, but he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. But right before this section, the introduction to it, are these words. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, the Spirit guides Jesus through his preparations because they were so demanding. Jesus begins with a 40-day fast of devotion, of communion with God, and it's also going to be an opportunity for the evil one to tempt him, but this time would be a time of strength and preparation for him. I mean, perhaps right here we have a spiritual secret in triumphing over temptations. It's prayer. It's fasting. Have you tried those? You know, the devil doesn't like spirituality, whether it's in the Son of God 
but whether it's in us as his children. And so we shouldn't be dumbfounded by times of difficulty when we're pursuing hard after God. It shouldn't be strange to us that it's when we're trying to pray and read the Scriptures in the morning that we get distracted so easily. It shouldn't be a surprise that on Sunday mornings it's so hard to get to church sometimes. That should be expected as normal. And it shouldn't be a surprise that when we decide we're going to step out in faith and do some maybe mission work or adventure, that all of a sudden our life gets turned upside down. But our Lord Jesus in this passage proves throughout all 40 days, and especially at the height of it at the very end with these three temptations, that he is and will remain the loyal and faithful son of the Father. So let's talk about these briefly. So the devil tempts Jesus throughout his preparations, we read in verses 3 to 12. And again, these three are the culmination at the end of 40 days. And again, we don't know exactly how the devil came to Jesus or exactly the nature of all these temptations and how he actually put them together. And what we have is what's recorded for us in Scripture. So there are three temptations. The first one in verses 3 to 4 is the temptation of bread. The second one in verses 5 to 8 is the temptation of earthly power and glory. And the third temptation is the temptation of forcing God's favor in verses 9 to 12. So first of all, the temptation of bread. We read, the devil said to him, since you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. See, the devil is seeking to get Jesus to satisfy his own needs by using his unique divine power and not trust in the care plan that God the Father has for him. See, the words of the devil appeal directly to his divine sonship. In other words, it would be really easy for you, Jesus. I mean, all you have to do is exercise who, who you are, your divine nature, and turn these stones into bread. And some English translations will have, if you are the son of God, but... It's a translation thing, and in Greek it's a first clause conditional, so it means since. In other words, it assumes the truth of what's being said. So that's why that's a better translation of the English. It's since you are the Son of God, well then turn these stones to bread and fulfill your hunger. Now there was at the time a messianic expectation floating around when Jesus was ministering that when the Messiah appeared, up, appeared on the scene, he would actually reproduce the miracle of the manna in the wilderness. But you know, it's this plague, it's this temptation that actually plagued Jesus throughout his ministry, his whole ministry. People are always saying to him, oh, do a miracle for us. Oh, Jesus, if you just do a miracle, then I'll believe it. Well, just believe, people. Right? I mean, this is the way I've, I've seen it a lot, especially in places I've been in South Asia, more Nepal, more than many other places, where it's like everyone has to get their daily dose of miracles. And they're always looking for the next miracle, and their faith only lasts that long. But, you know, it's not just in those places in the world, too. We have a bunch of crazy Americans running around, wanting to hear miracle stories all the time, rather than just simply believing in Jesus. Now, more to the point, the devil is suggesting that God the Father has abandoned him because he's not providing for him. Ah, that should remind us of a couple other stories. Isn't that exactly what God or what the devil did with Adam 
Did God really say? He just doesn't want you to be like him. He tried that one on Adam and it worked back then. He tried it with Israel too because, I mean, constantly as they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, how many times do we read, oh, you just let us out on the desert to die. You don't really care about us. And the devil is suggesting here that he doesn't, Jesus doesn't even need to live in self-denial. I mean, especially he's the son of God. But Jesus would live his whole life and even die his death in service to other people and to fulfill the plan of his father. The question is, would Jesus use his power wrongly and break trust with his father and his ways of providing and even stop believing that this test and these ministry preparations are really the best? That's a hard thing to learn, too, and to trust that the tests are the best for us. Jesus responds in faith and obedience by quoting Moses in his speech to the people of God before they entered the promised land. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, this little phrase, man does not live by bread alone. But the paragraph is what, of course, is being referenced ultimately. So let me read it to you. You can just write it down and look at it later. It's Deuteronomy 8.2 and following. It says, and you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You see, Jesus asserts that he's going to fully obey where his ancestors had failed. And he will show this truth by his own example that the word and doing the will of God and fulfilling his word is more fundamental to life than even food, the most basic physical need. Well, that's the first temptation of bread in verses 3 to 4. The second one is the temptation of earthly power and glory in verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give the, all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil is seeking here to get Jesus to take his earthly rule early without having to suffer. All he had to do was just change his allegiance. Now, if you look at Matthew's gospel and his recording here, he has a different order of these two, number two and number three, these two temptations. Most assume that Matthew's order is chronological, but we don't really know. There are not six temptations, there are three. But neither Matthew nor Luke even says they're presenting them to us chronologically. Matthew desires to end with an emphasis on the kingdom because that's the major theme of his gospel. Luke wants us to end in Jerusalem where there's the final place of conflict. And so the order of their presentation fits their themes that they're writing about in their gospels, respectively. Now the devil showed somehow Jesus the kingdoms of the world in a moment. 
Matthew tells us it was likely on a high mountain and probably in a vision, but regardless how it happened, whatever Jesus saw, it was an offer, it was an offer to have all the world's power. The devil offers that which he says was given to him by God and that he has authority now to give it to whomever he wants to. Certainly, when you think about Jesus at this point in his life, he doesn't have anything to speak of in regards of power or glory. And it looks like it's not going to be the case for quite some time. The devil dangles the bait in front of him, but there's a condition, and he would have to switch his allegiance. I mean, Jesus could have it all. It's promised to him. And the evil one knows these promises in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.14. But the temptation is to take it all right now without the cross. Psalm 2 says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. You know, this is a really interesting offer when you think about it. Because the devil acknowledges that he received these kingdoms from God. I mean, you read scripture and you find that the evil one is often referred to as the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of air, or the god of this world. And the world is described as being in his power. But it also appears to be a lie. It's a delusion that somehow he can give it to whomever he wishes. It's a half-truth. That's because his position is one of subordinate power. God is still sovereign. The scriptures are clear. He sets up kingdoms and takes them down as he wishes. You see, the devil's description really hasn't changed much since the fall of Adam and Eve, twisting the truth of God. He still does it today and tries to lead people, and you've seen it and experienced it. Maybe you've succumbed to it once in a while yourselves, where people will twist Scripture's meaning to serve their own pleasures or justify their sin. And then the temptation might have an immediate payoff, but in the end, Jesus would really lose it all, and he would have to give to the devil what's really God's alone, and that's worship. And you think about what Israel did. They did the exact opposite. They worshipped false gods. False deities are nothing other than demon-sponsored religions. They did exchange the glory of God for that. They perceived they could get so many temporal benefits if they just worshipped other gods, local deities, See, they were seeking out an earthly glory by a worldly way. Jesus again quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 6.13, that little phrase, you shall worship him and swear by his name. The larger section is this, starting in Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, For the Lord your God is in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. 
Jesus asserts here that he's going to fully obey where his ancestors failed. And he's going to show this truth by example of faithfully following God's plan and worshiping him even with the suffering. Because the suffering is the path to the glory that awaits. That's the second temptation. The third temptation is forcing God's hand in verses 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the devil here is seeking to get Jesus to demand special protection in a self-glorifying act. Now, how this temptation took place is not exactly clear. Did they actually go to Jerusalem, or is this in a vision? The place could be the roof of the temple. It could be the balcony. Most understand it as a place overlooking the Kidron Valley, 500 feet straight down. And there was a messianic expectation at the time, actually, that when the Messiah appeared, he would appear on the temple heights, but there's no idea of him jumping off. The temptation could be a temptation to perform a spectacular act in public to affirm that you really are the Messiah, or maybe better, really here, it's a personal temptation in his relationship with God, his Father. And so any high cliff might do. But the place of the temple is chosen because it's a symbol of his closeness to God the Father. The devil quotes Psalm 91. Quote Psalm 91, which we read this morning, verses 11 and 12. And he assures Jesus that the angels will guard him and not allow him any suffering. And you see, this is a perfect example of how quoting Bible verses doesn't always convey God's will. Some very unlearned and inexperienced Christians will often use Psalm 91, the same psalm, in the same manner. And say things like, well, God promises that you're not going to have any pain and suffering in life. God promises to take away all your hardship. God promises that you don't have to be sick. And the list goes on. You know the craziness that's out there. But of course, the devil's usage misses the overall vision of Psalm 91 and even the basic conventions of language which anyone can gather if they just read the psalm. And we read the psalm earlier. Someday we'll study it together. But Psalm 91 is about trusting in and depending on God in a relationship that glorifies him always. And it often also talks about how he so often does deliver us from these things in our lives and that ultimately speaking, ultimately speaking, he will deliver us from them all because we will be with him in glory. But Psalm 91 is not to be used to force God's hand to prove your own greatness. Jesus is the one who actually ends up proving the truth of Psalm 91 by this whole ordeal with the devil. Psalm 91 ends as God speaks to the obedient one. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. 
See, Jesus believes that God, his Father, is currently protecting him. He doesn't need to demand some proof of it, some miracle from him to prove that God still loves him. That would be very inappropriate to ask that kind of a sign, a stage test of God. So jumping off would be an act of unbelief, not faith, let alone stupidity. But it's not an act of faith. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which alludes to Israel putting God to the test at Massa and Meribah, which mean testing and quarreling. Deuteronomy 6.16 is where we read that phrase, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, which they were saying at that time, why did you lead us here? Just to kill us? Give us some water and give it to us right now. And it's recorded in Exodus 17, the storyline, starting in verse 1, but it ends this way. Behold, I will stand before you, God speaking to Moses, and there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that my people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying... Is the Lord among us or not? You see, here we discover the nature then of the temptation that was happening to Jesus at the time. It's very personal. Is the Father still with him or not? And Jesus asserts that he's going to fully obey where his ancestors failed and show the truth by his example. He knows that no matter how difficult the situation is, the Father's never going to leave him. He doesn't need to test God to find that out. So the devil tempted Jesus throughout his preparations, but he failed. Because in the first temptation, Jesus actually had faith that his father would provide for all of his needs. And he trusted in his own plan for that. The second temptation failed because Jesus desired his father's glory more than his own. And that he knew in due time he would receive his own. The third temptation failed because Jesus was confident that the Father loved him, always loved him, never left him, and didn't need to test it. You see, our Lord Jesus proves to us that he is and will remain the loyal and beloved Son of the Father. In other words, Jesus knew that he was so loved by the Father that he obeyed, and he was able to make it through the temptations. Well, at the end... In verse 13, it stated that Jesus conquered. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil left Jesus until an opportune time. He left with his tail between his legs because he was defeated. He retreated. After every temptation, Jesus is thoroughly victorious. And it promises of a great victory at the end. And Matthew and Mark at this point tell us that After this ending, angels came to Jesus and ministered to him. Perhaps they brought him food and drink and strengthened him. You see, the battle would rage all throughout Jesus' ministry many opportune times. For example, the devil would work against Jesus' teachings. When he would teach, there would always be people to have to oppose the truth. The devil and his demons would attack people, and then Jesus would expel them. And we'll read about some of those stories. 
And of course, there's the climactic opportunity that comes toward the end in Luke 22, 3. It says this, and Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And there's the betrayal. And the devil would think that the cross was his own final victory against defeating against Jesus and defeating the Son of God, the Son of Man. But really, it's the exact opposite. It's the victory of the Son and the defeat of the devil. And the resurrection proves this, and it would be the guarantee of his rescue of fallen humanity. For those for whom he died, those who would eventually be putting their trust in him, in 1 John 3, it says this, that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus' victory in our passage this morning does relate to our victory as well. I mean, we look around at all the sons of Adam. We look at the sons of Israel. And all we see throughout all of human history is abject failure. That's what we see. And hopefully, when we look at others, we look at ourselves and we see the exact same thing. You look inside yourself and you see failure. We fall short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous, not one. In fact, there is one, and there's only one. He is Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. We see His success, and in His life, a perfect obedience that none of us could ever attain. This, too, is the part of the teaching of this passage in Luke, Jesus has conquered where all humanity has failed. And better yet, he has succeeded on behalf of those people who will put their faith in him. He died for our sins and lived his life in righteousness for our righteousness. And more will come on this later, this theme. But Jesus is basically saying in this passage, I am the righteousness unto salvation for all of you who have failed God and want it. Come and believe in me and receive the righteousness that I have earned. Jesus' victory over the devil doesn't end here. It continues even in our lives as his people. He justified us. He gives us his spirit so we can live out an actual righteousness in our life to the very end. And we get to battle against the evil forces of this world and against the devil and his minions and against our own flesh. We get to be a part of that and experience victory by the spirit of God. Peter and James, perhaps reflecting on this very episode that we have in Luke 4, encourage us in what we've observed. James chapter 4, 7 says this, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Peter, in chapter 5, verse 8, says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Jesus conquered the devil in every situation. His pattern of obedience is now established. And his obedience is going to become a major theme in the Gospel of Luke and in his life and his ministry, he's still going to face other temptations and other tests, but they are definitely going to be lesser than these and not as direct. And so we have great confidence in Jesus being our strong Savior. He proved he is 
the beloved Son of the Father, and He's going to remain that way for us. He is a real and strong Savior who persevered to the very end. You see, so before Jesus began His public ministry, He prepared Himself by undergoing an extended time of fasting and prayer to gain the strength that He would need to begin His ministry. And so the next verse reads, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Preparation by extended prayer and fasting, it often accompanies great works on God's behalf. We see it not only in Jesus, but in other great stories in the Bible and throughout church history. I mean, even us here at, us, we lowly ones here at Calvary EV Free, we see it preparing our lives by prayer and fasting and going through great testings and getting to participate in great accomplishments for the kingdom of God. But we've learned today that we defeat the devil by obeying Scripture, not simply by quoting it. That's what Jesus did. In other words, you quote it with resolve that you're going to follow through because you're relying upon the Holy Spirit to make it come true and in prayer. Now, certainly, because of who Jesus is and his nature and the nature of his mission, we have to be careful not to just simply put ourselves in Jesus' position here or to do so too quickly. I mean, it is true to really just a large degree that we should just look at his triumph over these temptations and put our faith in him for salvation. I mean, we shouldn't think that we're so important that the devil would show up and show up and pay us a personal visit. I've run into a lot of those people. It's a false humility. But since Jesus himself purposefully paralleled, as we saw, his experience under trial with the experience of the people of God in the Old Testament, there's sufficient reason and confidence and warrant we have for making direct applications to our lives. And there are so many directions that we can go in with this today. But in sort of a, a different way of concluding today, I want to ask us three reflective questions. And uh, we can think about these um, as we leave this morning, and we'll pray after that. But thinking about that first temptation, you can look at your text if you want, first verses three and four. So here's the question. Do we who are in Christ and have the Spirit of God trust God enough in our hearts to be able to renounce a lifestyle of self-serving materialism and embrace a lifestyle of faith committed to self-sacrifice in order to accomplish God's mission in this world? Do we who are in Christ and have the Spirit of God trust God enough in our hearts to renounce the lifestyle of self-serving materialism and embrace a lifestyle of self-sacrifice so that we can promote the accomplishment of the purposes of the kingdom of God. In other words, when you look at that first temptation, what would it mean for you to live by faith in the word of God even more? Even more. These questions are for all of us. Looking at temptation number two, do we who are in Christ and who have the Spirit of God 
have so much joy in our anticipation for the kingdom to come and its promises of what is better such that we pursue it and we are willing to forsake compromise with this world and its power structures, not settling for what's less than God's best and to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom. Looking at temptation too, it's about earthly glory. Do we who are in Christ and have the Spirit of God have so much joy in our anticipation of what the kingdom's going to be like? That that's our ultimate hope? That we don't have to compromise with political structures and hopes in this world, in the kingdoms of man, and settling for what is less than God's best? So that we give ourselves in this life wholeheartedly to preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, what would it mean for you to have an even greater future hope wrapped up in the glory of God. Sometimes we lose sight of that. And we get our hopes wrapped up in this world and the glory of mankind and our glory. What would it mean, looking at temptation too, for us to have an even greater future hope and just being wrapped up in that for God's glory in our life? Finally, looking at temptation number three, do we who are in Christ and have, a spirit of God, have the Spirit of God love God enough so that we don't test Him? Challenge Him. Force Him to do things for us in our way and for our comfort, but rather relate to Him in such a way as to endure all things and to rest in the knowledge of His love and His presence with us in the midst of our suffering and that He will accomplish His will in it. Again, do we who are in Christ and have the Spirit of God love God enough so as not to test Him, to challenge Him, to force Him to do things our way for our comfort, but rather relate to Him as our Father in such a way that we can endure all things and trust Him, knowing that His love is with us and His presence is always with us as we accomplish His will. In other words, what would it mean for you to relate to God with an even greater loyalty and love? That's what Temptation 3 is all about. What would it mean for you to relate to God with an even greater loyalty and love? So may we all follow Jesus' example this morning, eager to develop our relationship with God the Father all the more through Jesus Christ, the obedient one, in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can grow in faith and in hope and in love. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we look at you in this temptation narrative, this passage of Holy Scripture, what you experienced, what you endured, what you related to your apostles, what they wrote in Scripture under the direction of the Holy Spirit for us and for the benefit of your church. We look at this and we stand amazed at who you are and how you could do this and your glory throughout the whole process, and that you're willing to do all of this for your Father's glory and for the purposes, the eternal purposes of redeeming for yourself a people to praise your name. In other words, doing it for us, even. We thank you for your willing sacrifice of your life on our behalf on the cross. We thank you for the glory of the resurrection that promises us a future inheritance far beyond this world, and this experience. And we pray this morning that you would be glorified in your church here at Calvary. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.